It's good to see you all. Due to some technical difficulties, I don't believe the words will be shown today, and we are not able to live stream. So you're the privileged folks that get to hear things live. Yeah. So these things happen. NVIDIA puts out new drivers, and uh, our computer doesn't like it. So trying to figure stuff out. Praise the Lord for, uh, for him, that he is constant. We can trust him. We can look to him in all times. And uh, we'll be in Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 1, if you want to turn there. I do have one announcement. Next week, following the service, uh, probably 15, 20 minutes after, we're going to have a quarterly meeting. We typically will have one, um, yeah, every quarter to just convey what the plans are for the fellowship, any needs, announcements. It's more of an extended time of, uh, I guess, interacting with each other, so 20 minutes, stick around, you're all invited and welcome to attend that. And let's pray. Our Father, thank you so much for blessing us, for giving us your Son, for sending your Holy Spirit to fill us and to regenerate us and to make us new. And we thank you for the truth of your word that we can count on you, that you do not change. Thank you that... You are merciful and gracious, loving and compassionate, that you saw us suffering and you have come to us, and you have made a way for us to know you and to live with you forever. And I pray that you would fill us with your spirit so that we might draw near to you, we might hear your voice, our eyes would be opened, our hearts prepared to receive your truth and to walk in your light. In Jesus' name, amen. There is in life one, at least one thing we try to avoid, And I think suffering is probably towards the top of that list. Can you imagine anyone like selling insoles and saying, uh, suffering with every step? Like, oh, that sounds pretty good. Or a bed that just puts you in agony. (laughs) No, we don't want to suffer. We don't want to feel pain and uh, suffering and hardship. It's part of life, opposed to happiness and pleasure, but it feels, so one we're seeking after, we want to be happy, we want to have pleasure, but on the other hand, we don't want to suffer. It seems uh, unnecessary and preventable, and if we can avoid it, we will. In courts of law, people uh, seek compensation for pain and suffering, and some view the fact that God allows suffering in the world to be unethical, but what those ethics do not allow for or account for is we justly deserve suffering because of our sin, and God graciously chose to suffer so that we could be healed, so we could be redeemed and restored and know Him. Like, God is the only one who did not need to suffer. He could have avoided it completely, yet He chose to suffer us gladly, and He chose to suffer for us so that we could be healed and redeemed and restored and Um, God is a just judge. He will hold people responsible for the suffering they cause because of sin. He is our advocate and our consolation and peace. And we know that when one part of the body suffers, the rest of the body suffers with it. I remember smashing my finger with a very large sledgehammer, and I did not sleep much that night. My whole body was deprived of sleep. It was throbbing. It was the only thing I could think about. For about 24 hours. It was just misery, just so awful. 
And when Jesus embraced suffering as a human being on earth, suffering for him didn't finish at Calvary because he's the head of the body, the church. And you think of how much suffering there is in the world and how much Christians have suffered for their faith. And he allowed that to be part of him, that he would endure that and he would overcome, he would be victorious. It's like our cumulative suffering will come to an end one day, but God's grace, his love and compassion, it continues without intermission. So praise the Lord, he has chosen to suffer for us. Now this letter of Hebrews that we started last week, it's written to believers, Hebrew Jews, uh, Christians, and it demonstrated the divine supremacy of Jesus over angels, and in this second chapter, it explores the impact of his humanity. Because we know that God came to earth as a man, but it's important to know why and what he accomplished as a man, and how Christ became one of us to save us, and suffered to provide a future where suffering is not remembered nor comes into mind. And that's very attractive, isn't it? So Hebrews Chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the words spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? God also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. We did discuss verse 1 last week, but it helps sets the context for what follows. And scriptures were presented to show that Jesus is divine, that he's superior over all angels. And God called him my son. He commanded that all angels worship Jesus, that Jesus holds the scepter as sovereign and judge over all, that Jesus created angels to serve him, he does not serve them, and was invited by the Father to sit at his right hand, a privileged place that no angel could aspire to uh, or rightfully claim. The peril of drifting from the truth of Jesus is very real, and therefore we have to give heed to what we have heard him say. So angels spoke in the Old Testament and uh, in the New as well. We see them involved in God's plans. But the things that Jesus said, we need to give earnest heed to those, lest we drift away. And to heed, it's to hear and to do. So it's to put into practice what you have heard. Verse 2, it reminds readers how angels were used by God to give divine messages that came to pass. Even the law Filled with the Holy Spirit. This is what Stephen said to the council in Acts 7, 52 and 53. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you have now become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. Also in Galatians 3, 19, it says the law was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. So God did give the law to Moses, but somehow angels were used in that process. Those who broke the law, they were declared guilty by men and held accountable to it. They were justly punished. Jesus is infinitely greater than angels, and therefore there is far more to answer from him if we neglect so great a salvation offered. 
This word neglect, it means to disregard or to make light of. Now, this exhortation, again, is is to believers. We know that unbelievers have neglected the salvation. They've neglected to believe it, but we can neglect as believers to walk according to it, to walk according to the grace we have received. It's possible to own a new car and to neglect it, right? We, you don't wash it. You don't service it. That's possible, right? It's impossible to neglect a car that you don't own because it's not yours. But he's saying don't neglect so great a salvation, one that you've received, one that you have been given. It's possible to be a dietitian and a personal trainer and neglect your own physical health just eating whatever and eating to excess. And it's possible to be a Christian and neglect our own salvation. Salvation that you have received, but we can forget who Jesus is. We can forget who we have been made to be by his grace and how we ought to live and obey and follow Christ and all that he has said. Brothers and sisters, do you see your salvation as a benefit once received, or a rescue from eternal damnation that you deserve. There's a difference depending on how... uh, If something comes to you cheaply, you may not value as much as if you worked for years to gain it. For us, there was no escape from hell because of our sin. We deserved punishment and damnation forever. And... There's also no escape from God holding us accountable to live our lives that he has redeemed for him. Because he has redeemed us for a purpose, right? That we would honor and serve him, that we would fear and love him, that we would draw near to him in obedience. And it would be a tragedy for us to fall short of the full reward that God has set aside for you through Christ. Verse 3, it seems like the writer of the passage did not hear Jesus speak firsthand, came to Christ through the testimony of those who declared him. These words were confirmed by God and the witness of the truth by signs, wonders, miracles, the gifts of the Spirit. And having been born again by the Holy Spirit, we ought to stir up the gifts that God has given us. We know that God gives the fruit of the Spirit, but also gifts of the Holy Spirit. We're his ambassadors, as it's written in 2 Corinthians 5.20, and we spread his fragrance everywhere. Imagine a disciple being discouraged because they haven't received the gift they value and neglect the gift that God has already given them. There are some who deny the legitimate operation of spiritual gifts because of the excesses like seen in the church in Corinth, or because they don't have the gift that they value. I like what Paul wrote to Timothy in recognition of his genuine faith. He's like, you have genuine faith, so you have a gift. And he said this in 2 Timothy 1, 6 and 7. Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Serving Jesus caused Paul to suffer. And Timothy, he may have, I don't know what prompted this statement exactly, but seeing Paul suffer for Christ may have caused him to be a bit reticent to use his gift to teach. 
He's like, I could be beaten. I could be imprisoned. I'm not really sure that this is the time or the place to open my mouth and proclaim Christ. But Paul said, hey, stir up that gift. Get it going in your life. Exercise it according to the Spirit. Because fear of Satan, fear of man, fear of suffering, that's not of God. It's power, love, and a sound mind. That is of God, and you're to walk in that. So he would be neglecting his salvation to not walk in this spirit of power, love, and a sound mind, but to walk otherwise, according to the wisdom of this world. Hebrews 2, verse 5, For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels. But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he has put all things, in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not see yet see all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death. For everyone. This is another way that Jesus is superior to all the angels because God did not put the world to come, the eternal state we call heaven, under the governance of angels. It was David who wrote this in Psalm 8, 4 through 6, and he said, It's amazing that God is mindful of us, that he pays attention to us, that he cares for us who are so low, made of the dust of the ground, and yet He has crowned us with glory and honor. He's given us dominion over this earth. Angels don't have dominion over this earth. It was Adam and all his seed that would have dominion. And it wasn't synonymous parallelism when David mentions man and then the son of man. We'll see parallelism very often in Hebrew poetry. And this is Um, a case of it, but it goes deeper because the Son of Man is speaking now of Christ, that he has given him dominion over everything. Angels weren't given dominion over heaven or earth. That's a privilege given to mankind, and so it fits perfectly that God would put a, a man, he would give, he would become a man and make all subject to him in heaven and on earth, in this world and in the world to come. Verse 8, it says, but now we do not see all things put under him. We do see sickness in this world. We do experience death. People and Satan still oppose Christ and his truth, right? It's not, it's not like there's only one government without an opposition. If you have a government in charge, there is an opposition in Australia. And um, God is in charge and there are a lot who oppose him. But a day is coming where he will reign in righteousness and all will be in agreement with him. Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. He was made human flesh for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor. In the immortal divine state of God, in spirit form, it was impossible for him to suffer. He could not suffer. As the Almighty, he created the earth, the natural laws, time, but he's not subject to any of them. He does not need to eat, breathe, sleep, exert effort, like even the process of thinking for us. It it requires energy. 
Our bodies need nutrients to provide strength to vital organs. But God does not experience fatigue, hunger, thirst, pain in a spirit form, right? God is a spirit. By putting on human flesh, however, he was enabled to experience suffering himself and the suffering of death. So by the grace of God, he could experience death for everyone and by his sacrifice provide eternal life for all who trust in him. Adam's sin resulted in death. Because of his offense, death passed to all men. Man who God created to rule was reigned by death, and Jesus came to overthrow that, to overcome that. We read that in Romans 5, 14 through 15. It says, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, which is a type of him who is to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. A brave soldier on the cusp of battle might tremble with fear at the prospect of dying, the prospect of being captured. This fighter has volunteered freely to go to battle, suffered separation from family and friends, put their career on hold to risk their lives. They agreed to do something that other people were unwilling to do. Out of love for sinners, Jesus, he came to earth as the Messiah, the Son of God, knowing he was going to suffer and die, not that he might. And he suffered long before the cross because he suffered poverty. He suffered the rejection of his family and friends. He suffered the rejection of the Jews. He faced um, assassination attempts, scorn. He was executed by the Romans. When my grandfathers were young, they lived in a time that uh, young men seeing their nation at war were compelled to go and serve. Uh, I have a great uncle who at 16 years old went and lied and said he was 18 so he could go overseas to Europe and enter that fight at 16 years old. That was a du- he felt a duty to country. But for Jesus to come, it was not a duty to the Father. It was not a duty or for nationalism or uh, moral obligation. It was love for lost sinners. That's why Jesus volunteered and he came gladly according to the will of the Father, to suffer and to suffer death. And he would save those lost sinners by crushing Satan on Calvary. Hebrews 2, starting in verse 10, For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. When you receive something, you appropriate it for yourself and for your use. It's kind of like Andy when he gets Woody and he writes on his foot, Andy. 
in Toy Story. He's like, this is mine. This is my toy. It stays in my toy box because it's mine. And it's true that God gave man dominion over earth and all the creatures on it, but it remained God's. It didn't become man's. It was still God's earth, and it was God's creatures, and it was God's people because they were all created for him and by him. This concept of God's law, his ownership and rule, it was held forth in the law. Leviticus 25, 23, it says, The land shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. Even the land that he gave them, according to Lot, when they entered into the promised land, it was theirs, but it was still God's. God said, you don't sell it permanently. This is all mine, but I'm giving you a place here. I'm allowing you to work that land and to toil in that uh, soil and bear fruit. That land was not their eternal home. Even they were to realize we are sojourners. We are strangers. When we leave this earth, God is going to gather us to himself and we'll be with him forever because we trust in him. It was David who wrote in Psalm 24, 1, The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. So God owns the earth. He owns all the people. They are all his. They exist for him and by him. And it's right that Jesus should be the captain of our salvation. And I love that word. I've noticed that a lot of Australian sports teams have a captain. And this captain is usually a veteran, probably one of the better players on the side and respected. And it's, it's not a coach. The captain is not the coach. The captain is one who's on the field, who discusses questions with the referee, who huddles everyone together and says, this is our plan of attack, this is what we're going to do, you're going to go over here, and this is, you know, rally the troops, so to speak. In warfare, historically, it was the captain who led the people into battle. It was the lieutenants who ensured that his plans and tactics were followed. Jesus is made the captain of our salvation, made perfect through sufferings. As God, he had no personal experience with pain and suffering, but as a man, he did. Death reigned from Adam. Jesus suffered death by experience. So he couldn't just go to the point of death. He had to suffer death because death was reigning. Death ruled over all. And so Jesus came to endure that, to experience that, that we could have life. It's like he was a pioneer, a trailblazer, who led the way into eternal life because he is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the perfect captain, and suffering was the way to make him the perfect captain. That perfect is complete, accomplish, and consummate. So Jesus, he sanctifies. He sets us apart. And though he sets us apart, we are all as one, united in him. Being a man, Jesus identified with those he sanctified as brethren. The mightiest angel cannot claim that they are brethren with Christ. We can because he became a man, and he has called us brethren. We could not dare to call him a brother, but he calls us brethren. He calls his redeemed brethren. And the writer of Hebrews, in case you're not really sure that this is biblical, he gives us some scriptures here. The first is, Um, From Psalm 22, verse 22. 
Psalm 22 is really significant because Jesus uttered those words from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we can see the rest of that passage dovetails so perfectly into the suffering of Christ on the cross and his redemption for mankind who trust in him. And in verse 22 of Psalm 22, from the perspective of the Messiah, it says, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. The other verses are from Isaiah 8, 17 and 18. They read, And I will wait on the Lord who hides his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Here am I and the children whom the Lord has given me. We are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. When you think of a sign or a miracle or a wonder, you might think of healing or the feeding of the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. What light Hebrews sheds on Isaiah that Jesus was the one who had children given him by the Father, that he and his redeemed were for signs and wonders in Israel. Many who desire to see signs and wonders take for granted the fact them being born again makes them a sign and a wonder of God's miraculous salvation and his grace and his love. That we are able to be adopted by God into his kingdom because he put on humanity and he suffered for us. So he can rightfully adopt us. He's met the conditions. Becoming a man, so now we can be part of him as people that he's created. And he calls us brethren. Jesus has broken down that middle wall of separation between Jew and Gentile. We are one in him. This is what makes Christianity so unique among all faiths, is that God became a man and suffered for us. It's not by anything we can do to earn the right to draw near to God, but he has come to us. He has become one of us. He has suffered. He has died. He has overcome our enemy, and now we rule and reign with him by grace through faith. We can have a relationship with God through what Jesus Christ has done. He calls us his beloved children, and it's totally true. Because we have been born again into his family. John 1, 11 and 13, it says of Jesus, He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So the people that would say, oh, we're all God's children. That's not biblical. We are in Christ, we are his children. Hebrews 2, 14. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Would you agree that one of the early lessons of life is learning to share? Learning, because as a kid, you really want other people to share with you. You, know, you see that toy, you want to turn, you want to have a go. You're like, come on, share with me. But then when you have ownership and control combined with some selfishness, 
It's like, well, I really don't want to share this with you because it's mine and it's precious to me. I value it. And I don't think you're going to give it back or I don't trust you to, to treat my toy very well. Like, you've got a whole bag of lollies. Why don't you share one with me? Of course, you, you can spare one, can't you? Jesus looked at suffering humanity under the power of death and Satan. And he said, I want to share that. I want to share in that. Like, I want that for me so that we could be free of it. I, I can tell you, I never did that. When a sibling of mine was in trouble, I fled the scene. I was not going to hang around for a stern talking to. I didn't want my freedom taken away. I did not want to swat. I was out of there. And I was like, ooh, I'm glad that's not me. God looked upon hurting and oppressed humanity, and his loving compassion compelled him to come near to help us. It wasn't that God wanted to endure suffering for the novelty of it. Like, you know what? This suffering thing has kind of a, become a big deal because of sin on earth. I want to see what that's like. No. He wanted to destroy Satan so we could be free. He wanted to endure death and defeat it so we could have eternal life. Have you ever been in a hurry and as you're driving to your destination, you see someone pulled over by the side of the road and the bonnet's open, there's a bit of steam coming out, and you're thinking, glad that's not me right now. I have. Once I was assistant coach of a, a soccer team when my boys were young, and before the game, literally out of the blue, one of the parents came up and just laid into me. And let me have it. And I, I honestly don't remember what it was about, but screaming, literally shaking with rage. And, and I was so shell-shocked that I just stood and took it. I honestly did not know what to do. And finally, what needed to be said was said, and he left the ground with his kids. And after that settled down, a couple of awkward minutes passed, and someone came. The people started kind of coming back again because they had scattered when all this went down. And one of them taps his shoulder and goes, huh, better you than me. I was like, gee, thanks, that's nice. That's how we can be. We feel fortunate to dodge a bullet. We want to dodge the bullet. We want to avoid that awkward, uncomfortable situation. Jesus looked upon abused, wounded, suffering humanity and said, better me for them. It's natural for mortal man to fear death. And the pursuit of life keeps us in bondage to fear. The Bible Knowledge Commentary, it said this, In speaking of the devil as wielding the power of death, the writer meant that Satan uses people's fear of death to enslave them to his will. Often people make wrong moral choices out of their intense desire for self-preservation. And it may not just be the self-preservation of our life, but preservation of our dignity, preservation of our pride, preservation of our reputation, preservation of our money, preservation of something that we don't want to suffer the loss of. God did not give his aid to angels, and he will not forgive, redeem, or release those spirits awaiting judgment who have sinned against him. 
But God graciously aids the seed of Abraham, those who trust in him. Christians no longer fear death because Jesus took the sting of it. It's like death is now a defeated enemy that serves God's purpose that paves the way into eternal glory and rest with Christ. Angels who sinned faced the second death in the lake of fire, but Jesus suffered so that we could live forever with him in glory. Continuing in Hebrews 2.17, Therefore, in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted." writer of Hebrews concluded that in all things Jesus needed to be like his brethren, 100% God made 100% human flesh. Verse 17, it introduces a new angle that we're going to explore as we get into this book, how Jesus is our merciful and faithful high priest. How Jesus, yes, superior to all the angels, but also superior to any priest who has ever lived because he offered himself as a sacrifice once for all, for all. Under the law of Moses, that high priest, he had to come to the Levites of the house of Aaron. The service of the tabernacle was not given to angels, but to Jewish men who were sanctified and fit for the role. And Jesus is a Jewish man who is fit being righteous. He did not have to offer a sacrifice for himself as the priests did. They would first have to be sanctified and anointed and then offer a sacrifice for their own sin before they offered a sacrifice for the people. But Jesus, he's without sin. And so he was able to offer himself so he could be redeemed. And that sin atoned for. Priests made propitiation. That's a word we don't often use. It means to be merciful or to make reconciliation. It carries the idea of atonement for sin, which is an adjustment, an exchange, or restoration of favor. Please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 6. Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 6. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more... Having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. We were without strength, unworthy of help or salvation. Jesus chose to suffer and die for us. And because he's justified us, he's pardoned us from sin, he has declared us righteous, he's imputed his righteousness to us, We will be saved from wrath through him. And I love that twice Paul says, much more. 
to show the sacrifice of Christ was much more than what was required to accomplish what he did. It's not like it just barely squeaked over, like, well, it's pretty much even, so I'll give it to you just because I'm a nice guy. No, it was super abundant. It was much more. It's like there was much more uh, consolation than there was affliction, much more forgiveness than there was sin, much more victory than there was any defeat. We deserved punishment and death, yet through the gospel we received salvation, reconciliation. I'm brought back to the point, though all were put under subjection of him. So there's nothing that's not under Jesus' feet. He has authority over all things. Yet all is not at this time under him because people still suffer. We still live in a light. We still live in this world where there is a fear of death and people eventually die. Hebrews 2 shows us that not only did Jesus become a man to suffer and experience death with an aim to adopt and reconcile us to God, but as a human, he suffered temptation because temptation still exists, doesn't it? Temptation to sin, temptation to despair. Because God is altogether good and righteous, he cannot be tempted to sin. It says so in James 1.13. But since Jesus became a man, he suffered temptation. So he's able to deliver us from all temptation the same way he is able to deliver you and will deliver you from death. Now that is awesome. The logic is as follows. Jesus suffered death to deliver us from it. Having suffered temptation... To sin, doubt, and despair, and disobey, he is overcome and able to help us in our temptation. Verse 18, it says, For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. He is the worthy captain of our salvation because he has suffered as we do and prevailed. Have you ever struggled or suffered such temptation that you wonder, am I even saved? How as a Christian can I be so drawn to these things? I thought I was born again. I thought I was made new. But there's still this draw in me towards sin and a propensity and, and almost a reaction towards it, an indulgence in it that I cannot shift. Remember, Jesus was tempted. He's the captain of our salvation. I like what Spurgeon wrote. If your Lord was tempted, shall the disciple be above his master or the servant above his Lord? If the perfect one must endure temptation, why not you? Accept it, therefore, at the Lord's hands and do not think it to be a disgrace or a dishonor. It did not disgrace or dishonor your Lord and temptation will not disgrace or dishonor you. The Lord who sends it sends also with it a way of escape, and it will be to your honor and profit to escape by that way, the way who is Christ. Turn to 1 Corinthians 10, 13 and 14. One Corinthians 10, verse 13. This is a great point of application that is really relevant for us all. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, 
but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Temptation overtakes us all. Only Jesus was able to overcome every time. Man's way of dealing with temptation often is indulgence, but God makes a way of escape by endurance because he is faithful. When you read about the temptation and you come to verse 14, it says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. That could be a strange conclusion. Like, okay, I didn't really expect him to go there based upon what he says in verse 13. It seems strange until we realize the reason we often fail to overcome temptation is because we think we have to save ourselves. We idolize our efforts. We think we are able to save ourselves from temptation when we know we're unable to save ourselves from hell. So we'll trust Christ for salvation, but we will not look to him in faith to endure temptation. Imagine to think that we can save ourselves from anything. We need him. We need Christ. And we need to walk in his ways. So let's confess our idolatry and repent, thinking we can do in our flesh what only Christ can do by the power of the Spirit. And so we need to choose the way of escape that God offers. By grace, Jesus is the way through faith in him and obedience. So receive the comfort, brothers and sisters, provided by our faithful Savior who became one of us and suffered for us so we could rejoice in our Savior, the captain of our salvation. You trust Jesus to save your soul from hell. Trust him who suffered and is faithful to save you from temptation. He demonstrated his love by suffering for us and having overcome, he can help you now. Sometimes we think of heaven uh, as like, well, I'm looking forward to getting off this rock so I can just be away from the suffering and all the pain of this world. But know that Jesus has an abundant life for you to live in him today, right now. A life that is truly victorious, a life that is abundant with his mercy, grace, and love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've made Jesus the captain of our salvation. And for these truths, I pray they would just sink deep into our hearts, that it would change the way we think, that we'd realize how, what you accomplished in sending Jesus to be our Savior as a man, that you've given him dominion, that you have made him uh, our captain, our Savior, both now and forever, that you can adopt us now as your children because you became like us and you suffered death for us. Lord, how wonderful that you didn't say when you saw suffering, better you than me. Thank you that you have come. You give us such hope, rest, and comfort, and I pray we would avail ourselves of your goodness and praise and worship you for the great things you've done. Lord, keep us from neglecting so great a salvation that you've given us and to walk in a way that pleases you, to walk worthily of your sacrifice and to give ourselves, present ourselves as living sacrifices unto you, which is our reasonable service. Lord, keep us from idolatry, thinking that we can do what only you can, thinking we can save ourselves or we'd be saved if we had something that we don't now have. Thank you that we have all in Christ, who is our all in all. In Jesus' name.
Amen.